If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, I hope that you do. I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 11. Luke and chapter 11, we're going to be in verses 37 through 54 in our time together this morning. Luke 11, 37 through 54. And uh, we are going to, as we reach the end of chapter 12 of Luke, this seems like a good place to take a brief break from Luke. So uh, today we are going to just hit the pause button on Luke. We'll come back to it in February, and we'll pick up in chapter 12. So over the next month and a half, um, next week and the week after, which is Christmas, we'll do a couple standalone texts from the Minor Prophets. And then in January, we're going to study Jonah. And so January, we'll go through Jonah. If you want a scripture, Jonah scripture journal, they just came in. They're on the welcome desk. Uh, the green ones and the black ones are the same in that they contain the same text on the same pages. The green ones are just have art and stuff on them. Okay, it's just prettier. Um, so guys, just grab the black one. Um, those will be four. They're four bucks regardless. So uh, between now and January, go ahead and grab those. We look forward to studying Jonah. But for today, let's, uh, let's look at Luke and chapter 11. If you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. Let's go ahead and read this together. Luke in chapter 11, start verse 37. The Holy Spirit says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, and they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge, you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who are entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard, to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Amen. This is God's word. May God write his eternal truths in all of our hearts. As you are fully aware, we have just mercifully exited election season here in the United States something that was extended for a month for us citizens of Georgia as some kind of collective punishment 
forcing us to get more mailers, see more ads, and receive more unsolicited texts from unrecognizable numbers for longer than anyone else in the whole country. Well, every time there's an election of any sort, I can't help but remember an article I read many years ago that has stuck with me ever since. The title of the the article is The Surprising Genius of the I Voted Sticker. I want you to listen to what it says. The author writes, the I Voted Sticker might not seem like much. It's silly, a holdover from a simpler time, the 80s to be exact. Some even say the stickers are a financial suck on the government. Many cities have gotten rid of them completely, including Chicago. But some researchers suggest that just telling people we voted could actually play into some pretty complex behavioral calculus for most of us. And it may reveal why people do and do not go to the polls, a problem that has confounded governments and designers alike for decades. It's a question that four researchers at Berkeley, Harvard, and the University of Chicago set out to study a few years ago. And their findings published in a paper called Voting to Tell Others. And it reveals some startling truths about participating in democracy. We might like to think of it as a noble pursuit. Voting is deeply tied to more base human feelings and motivations, like social standing. Basically, wanting to show off how good we are, along with dishonesty and shame. They say it all boils down to this. Many of us vote so that we could tell everyone else we voted. And we don't want to have to lie if we didn't. It turned out that people were more likely to vote if they knew they would be asked. Individuals with social image motives are more likely to vote the more they expected to be asked, the researchers explained. Nonprofits like Rock the Vote have tried to increase youth turnout by making voting rock star cool with support from celebrities. Political campaigns themselves spend millions to drive supporters to the polls, often with a potent mixture of fear and anger. Yet, they conclude, the simplest tactic might just be giving people a way to brag about voting through an actual sticker or a Facebook or Instagram status. So what the researchers concluded was that the motive for many people to vote was not because they wanted to make a difference, believe that their candidate would make some meaningful change or to bring about change in society. What motivated them was what people think about them. The motivation wasn't from internal care for politics and society. It was being seen and having the ability to brag about exercising their civic duty. In our text this morning, we see a similar theme. Here we see Jesus confronting the religious elite of the day whose mark of religion was merely external, performative, and impressive, but lacked internal and meaningful motivation that came from a heart that loved God and man. Jesus here is confronting religious hypocrites. Do you know what a hypocrite is? See, we think of hypocrite as mainly what? Someone who does one thing, or says one thing, and then what? Does the other. And in some sense, that's true. But the heart of hypocrisy is to be an actor, right? To to wear a mask. If if you were to go to a play, for example, you guys go to plays at the big cordial theater? Uh, (laughs) You, you would see actors on stage, right, inhabit a role as if they're the person that they are playing. Isn't that fair? S- say you went to watch a performance of Shakespeare's Hamlet. You see uh, a person playing Hamlet, dressed in all that medieval regalia, and he would weep, and he'd be sorrowful, and then he'd die. But then you, if you hung out for a little bit after the show, uh, you would see him wearing jeans, 
and sneakers and a t-shirt laughing with his fellow cast members. Well, why? Because he's not actually Hamlet. He's Frank McGillicuddy from around the way, right? If you went up to him after and he said, Frank, I just watched you die. How is it you're standing here? He'd look at you funny and tell you he was just playing a part. He was just acting. That wasn't really him. The idea of hypocrisy is like that in some sense. It's to be an actor. It's to be one person on the outside but completely different on the inside. It's to perform deeds purely for people to see because they're detached from an internal life. It's to be a divided person. To be externally pious but internally dead. So it's deceptive, like a cup that's clean on the outside, but then you go to pour it out and just mud comes out. This is what Jesus has a problem with and what he is warning against in this scene. Now we look at this. We look at this text and we think, I'm not a Pharisee, right? Like I'm not a scribe. I don't hold these offices. This text can hardly apply to me. Well, not so fast, my friend. Now what the Pharisees and scribes are guilty of is what we can all tend towards in matters of religion, namely self-righteousness, and focusing more on external appearance and performance than we do internal transformation, is to focus more on what we do than what we are. There's a line that's repeated a few times in the movie Batman Begins, first by Bruce Wayne's love interest and then by Batman later in the movie, and it goes like this. It's not who I am underneath, but what I do that defines me. And as much as it pains me to disagree with Batman, I have to say he got it all wrong. And so did the Pharisees, and so do we sometimes. What Jesus is showing us here is that a little religion is damning as no religion at all. That to be externally pious or impressive to those who see you, all the while neglecting your heart, is a pride that dates back to our first parents in Eden. And indeed, pride is the root of all sin, isn't it? So what we should see in this text are warnings to us to avoid the snares that the religious leaders of that day were firmly trapped in because if we are not careful, if we are not doing heart work, if we aren't checking our internal motivations at every turn, we could fall just the same. So as Jesus is talking about light You can look at your text and just see the previous text before. He's talking about light being received and then transforming the inside of the person. A Pharisee asked him, come have lunch at my house. And this this would be an open forum where the door was wide open for this lunch and people could come in from the streets and they could stand along the walls and they could hear the conversation, they could hear the teachings, and they could benefit from the dialogue. Well, as the meal's beginning, the Pharisee notices that Jesus did not wash his hands before he ate. Now understand, this is not about hygiene that the Pharisee criticized Jesus from the heart about. This is about ritual. It's purely ritual. Jesus is not breaking some command from the Old Testament. Jesus is not unclean, right? For he can't be. Rather, Jesus is breaking a rule that the religious folks just made up. It was a ritual washing, a tradition uh, that some kept, even as there was no biblical mandate for some. Well, Jesus is reading the Pharisee's mind. And this is what he says, you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Jesus is some house guest. 
You know, just as I said last week, that no church growth book would give you the advice to telling your growing crowd that they're evil. I don't think any book on manners would advise you to call your host a fool. Right? But Jesus does. And why? It's because he wants to warn them of the dangers of their religious formalism. He doesn't, he doesn't rattle off these six subsequent woes because he's trying to be severe for severity's sake. Rather, when Jesus says, woe, He's warning them of catastrophe, which looms unless they repent of their current behavior and posture. He wants them to turn from their destructive and divided ways, lest they fall into the abyss. This is why it's a warning for us too. It is those who believe themselves to be the most religiously scrupulous that are in the most severe danger of self-delusion that leads to death. Go contrary to popular belief, It is not unrighteous badness that prevents people from receiving the gospel and salvation. It's self-righteous goodness that will do it. Because that's the key, right? Those who are bad and know it. Those who are bad and know it are those who are more ready to receive the grace of God because they know they need it. Those who think they're super religious and moral and they're confident in their piety, and they think they're just crushing this whole religion thing, those are the ones in danger of being outside the kingdom of Christ. Because the kingdom of Christ is only for those who are needy and know it, and will cry for mercy. Those who think they're good will never cry for mercy, because they don't think they need it. Don't you see? Pastor and author Steve Brown said he used to think that there were two kinds of people in this world. Good people and bad people. Is that how you categorize, categorize people? He said, you know, I used to think good people go to church on Sunday and they're moral, they're good citizens. Bad people, they skip church, right? <laughs> they mow their lawns on Sundays and things like this. But then he says, you know, I hadn't been a pastor for long before I realized I'd been right that there are two types of people in the world, but I was wrong in who they are. He said, there's two types of people in the world aren't good and bad people. Two types of people in the world are bad people who know they're bad and bad people who don't. Surely you know that when Jesus is dealing with people who are broken and know it, people who are hurting and honest about it, people who are in dire need and don't mind expressing their neediness, people who are in the dirt and ask to be cleaned up, people who are sinners and they know they're sinners, but they wish to cease being one, people who are at the bottom of society and cry out for mercy, these are the people Jesus is most gentle with, isn't he, in these Gospels? These are the people he scoops up like a shepherd with a wounded and frightened lamb. But what about those who are proud and boastful? and give the appearance of religion, and are self-righteous. Those are the ones Jesus saves his harshest rebukes for, isn't it? I mean, it's right before you, is it not? The Pharisees, you understand, they believe in grace. They believe in the holiness of God. They believe in the law. They believe in sin. They believe in orthodoxy. The problem is, they believe they can merit that grace. They believe that what God cares about is what's on the outside, and they completely ignore what's going on in the heart. They think God doesn't care what's going on in there at all. Jesus says, you can wash the outside of the cup all you want. You can bleach it, you can make it shine, and you can make it as pure as possible, but inside what? It's filthy. And what they're missing, says Jesus in verse 40, is that God made the outside and the inside. 
which means he cares about both. And in fact, God cares far more about the inside than he does the outside because he knows that internal transformation will result in external deeds. But those will be deeds he accepts since they're properly motivated. This is the problem with the Pharisees and with all legalists. (laughs) They detach the law of God from God's gracious person. The rules become a way to earn God's favor when he never met them for such purposes. Legalism, as Sinclair Ferguson says, is a failure to see the generosity of God and his wise and loving plans for our lives. Or as Gerhardus Voss said, legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. The inner heart of the Pharisees were not motivated by a love for God. It was from a place of earning, of seeing God as a harsh taskmaster who could somehow be fooled by externals, separated from internal devotion. They saw God as someone who cared only about obedience and was not at all concerned with a heart that was devoted to him. They didn't realize that God wanted the whole person, the outside and the inside. And they didn't realize that transformation and renewal begin on the inside, then flow out to acts of external obedience that is obeyed out of love for God, not obedience done to appease some abstract and petulant deity. Because think about this. If mere obedience is how one pleased God, if one can earn salvation, then who would you be pursuing righteousness for? It'd be for yourself, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be for God. It would be so that you could get what you think you've earned and so that others can applaud your incredible deeds. In that case, isn't salvation inherently selfish? Jesus is after the heart. He knows that if you are indeed gripped by the grace of God, you will pursue obedience. But if you pursue obedience apart from a heart gripped by the love and grace of God, you're doing nothing, really. It's mere stage performance that leaves you as internally dirty as a tomb that's been hit by a pressure washer. Jesus wants the internals and externals to match. He's after actual transformation. He's after consistency before a God who cares about both the inside and the outside of the cup, as it were. Daryl Bach said this, a person cannot divide life into inner and outer, appearance and substance, public and private. This is hypocrisy and affront to the God who created both. Let's see. That's only the beginning because, says Jesus, you go above and beyond what the law prescribes. Did you see that? He says, you you tithe, but you neglect justice and love for God. The things you're supposed to do, you don't do, he says. You spend your time, says Jesus, going into your pantry and your spice cabinet. You get out the scale and you weigh your spices and you bring them to the temple. And in the meantime, you ignore injustice. You trample the poor. You take advantage of the widow and the orphan. You major on minors and you minor on majors. Woe to you. Jesus isn't against their tithing, you understand. What he wants to know is why they elevate some commands of Scripture to the point that they actually add to it while also de-emphasizing other commands that are more important. You should tithe, says Jesus, but you must also be kind to your neighbor and honor God. Jesus wants to know what good some religious ritual is 
when things God commanded as important like justice and fairness are being ignored. He wants to know how one can be picky and choosy with the Word of God. To obey what you want and ignore what you want to ignore. I think St. Augustine was thinking of Jesus' posture towards the commands of God when he said that if you accept what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe but yourself. This is what the Pharisees are doing. They obeyed what they wanted, ignored what they didn't much feel like doing. Are we not susceptible to the same sorts of things? Are we not susceptible to obeying some things in the Word while ignoring other things? Do you think? Can we not tend to think that external religious or moral deeds before people is enough? Can we not go through religious ritual while being internally unchanged? I think of a... One of the most misunderstood acts of Jesus was in the final weeks before his crucifixion and resurrection when he went into the temple, and what did he do? He flipped the money-changing tables. You remember that? See, we tend to think he's mad at the money-changers, right, for greed or taking advantage of people. But what we miss is the key in Jesus' words when he's flipping the tables. He calls the temple a den of what? Thieves or robbers. What's a den of thieves? A den of thieves is not where thieves go to steal, right? It's not where they go to steal or plunder. A den of thieves is a place that thieves retreat to after they've done their thieving. It's where they find safe haven. And Jesus takes this phrase, den of thieves, from Jeremiah 7, where Jeremiah goes to the temple And he cries against those who think they can ignore justice, oppress a sojourner, and the widows and orphans. They spill innocent blood. They worship the Baals. They swear falsely. They commit adultery. But then they go to the temple and they do their religious ritual. And God would be satisfied with that. You see what they did? They ignored justice. They worshiped idols. They actively oppressed the vulnerable. And they thought if they just went to the temple and they did everything they were supposed to do there, God wouldn't care about their deeds the other six days of the week. They thought they could live any way they wanted as long as they went to the temple and said, this is the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. Jeremiah says, woe to you, you are deceived. And so does Jesus here. It's the same thing Amos prophesied against. It's why God tells the people through Amos, I hate, I reject your festivals. I do not delight in your solemn assemblies. I will not accept your offerings. I don't want to hear your songs and your harps, but let justice roll down like waters. Over and over again, in the Old Testament, God rejects even religious ceremony done correctly because the people were using it as a cover for their lack of justice. Religious ritual detached from a heart for God is dangerous. Religious ritual that is used as a cover for lack of love for God and neighbor is damning. Are we less susceptible than they? What good is tithing abundantly if we ignore the poor in our community? What good are nice warm buildings at which the church can gather if the church has no care for those who are cold and hungry in their town? What good is it to, to sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me? 
if we leave and think there are people who are bigger wretches than us? What good is holding tightly to a church's traditions if we are gossips and slanderers? What good is wearing our Sunday's best if we harbor racial prejudice or hatred in our hearts? What good is it to praise God for his forgiveness of us when we withhold forgiveness from others that we perceive have wronged us? Doesn't God care about the poor? Doesn't he say to clothe the naked and feed the hungry? Then doesn't his word say that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst? Doesn't he say to keep gossip and slander out of your mouth for our words cut and spread like wildfire? Doesn't he condemn racial prejudice and ethnic hatred since Christ tore down the walls of division at the cost of his broken body? Doesn't he say that we show we have been forgiven by the way we forgive? Then they're not important matters, are they? Are we free to ignore them as long as we do those other things that we are more comfortable with? Do you guys see how insidious this can be? Don't you see that we could easily be like Pharisees and scribes? Again, Jesus' problem with them is not that they tithe. He wants them to. His problem is they're obeying the law, but then adding to it and thinking this gets them out of obeying something God repeatedly calls the people to be devoted to. Justice and a heart for God. Deeds without a heart for God, as we've seen, do nothing. God wants the whole person. The only way for the whole person to be transformed is from the inside out and not vice versa. And so it is for us. If we care more about external deeds, some of which may be even in the Bible, they may be our traditions or things we simply like or things that are part of our culture or family traditions or things we simply make up because then we imagine a good person, we just picture ourselves. If we care more about all that, and not what's going on in our heart. We're just like the Pharisees, are we not? we got to get the order right. We must start with a heart gripped by the gospel. We must start with a love for Christ's person. Then, while we do the heart work, this will flow out, of obe- out to obedience motivated by love. And the deeds done will be done because we're truly transformed. My friend, there's a world of difference between obedience for acceptance and obedience from acceptance. The way of the Pharisee is the former. The way of Christ is the latter. But not only do the Pharisees major on minors and minor on the majors, but they also relish in popularity and adulation of people. See, we might think of Pharisees and have a strictly negative view in mind, right? Because, uh, you know, we see how they harass Jesus, they bird dog him, they try to trap him, things like this. But people in first century Palestine would not have viewed them like that. They, they were considered the height of piety, they were people of stature, they were well thought of. So those who happen to walk into, if you could picture this scene, people are walking in from the street against the walls, they're listening to Jesus give these woes to these Pharisees, and they're up against this wall, and they're like, well, woe to Pharisees, woe to fools, they would be surprised. And then they would, they would ask if the pious Pharisees, the most religious and spiritual people in all the land, if they stand condemned, who is excluded from the need to repent? 
And what's the answer? No one. No one stands outside the need to repent. And that's the message Jesus is bringing. Look at the Pharisees, Jesus is saying. You give them the best seat in the house so that they could be seen and so that they could see everyone. You follow them and all their rules, but they're blind guides. We're still, they're unmarked graves. Following them is going to a grave without realizing it. Their way is death. And the people are supposed to wonder if the Pharisees must repent. If they're in danger of condemnation, if they aren't saved by their deeds and piety, then who can be saved by their piety? Who can be saved? And that's what Jesus wants them to ask and find the answer only in his gospel. For them to come to the conclusion that says, I need to repent then, and I need to embrace the kingdom of God shown up in a person, and I'm in desperate need of radical grace and free forgiveness so that I may be transformed from the inside out. That's where he's trying to get them to. If you guys remember, we'll get to this parable in chapter 18, but the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You guys know that one? (coughs) Pharisee and tax collector. You couldn't have two more diametrically opposed people in all of first century Palestinian society. Pharisees were considered the most pious, right? Religious, top of Jewish society. That's why they got the best seats. Tax collectors were considered impious traitors, and they're at the bottom of society. Jesus says these two men, they went into the temple to pray. They went into the temple to pray. One stood at the front, and he raised his hands and eyes to heaven, and he exclaimed loudly, Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Thank you that I'm not like swindlers, and I'm not like the unjust. And uh, thank you, I'm especially not like that tax collector over there. What's he doing in here anyway? Well, thank you that I tithe and I fast more than I'm required. And then you have the tax collector off in the corner. And he won't even look to heaven. He just looks down and he beats his chest. And he simply says, God, be merciful to me. Not a sinner, the sinner. Who went home justified? (laughs) The one who knew himself to be a sinner and thus went to the place where he knew he could find forgiveness to God alone. And on what basis? On no basis in himself. On only the basis that God is merciful to the contrite. The Pharisee wasn't justified. Why? Because he was trying to be. Don't you see? Unless we see ourselves. I need you to lock in here, okay? Put the phone down for a second and lock in. Unless we see ourselves as people who are in need of radical and lavish grace, we'll stand condemned with the Pharisees. It doesn't matter how upstanding a person we get people to think we are. It doesn't matter if people think we're very religious. It doesn't matter if people think we are important. It doesn't matter if people think we're good citizens. It doesn't matter if we do our religious duty. It doesn't matter if we do all the things that we've been told good Christians do. It doesn't matter if our family heritage is a bunch of church members. None of that matters unless we come to a place where we cry out to God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Because then we know the basis of our forgiveness and salvation justification is in the heart of a loving father who is ready and willing to forgive those who recognize their condemned state outside of his gracious acts. 
And Charles Spurgeon would sometimes tell of his friend named John Barrage. And he said, John Barrage was an odd fellow. He was as odd as he was good. You ever know anybody like that? And he said, old John had a number of pictures of different ministers from history around his bedroom in his house. And then at the end of all these pictures, he had a mirror that was framed in just the same way as all these other portraits. And when he had company over, he would take them to the room and he would say, look at these pictures. And they would stand in front of one and he would say, that's John Calvin. And they'd stand next to another one and he'd say, that's Martin Luther. And he'd go to the next one and he'd say, that's John Bunyan. And then when they went to the mirror, he would say, and that's the devil. And his friend would say, why, it is myself. Ah, said John, there is a devil in us all. Spurgeon's point was that if we realize how imperfect we still are, we'll be less likely to condemn others because we recognize we are in need of grace just as much as everyone else. That without a move of God, we'd be walking on unmarked graves headed to death. Such recognition should make our love and devotion to God even stronger and more joyous. But we must move on. Let's not forget that there are scribes in the now very awkward lunch as well. Scribes, you'll remember, they're legal experts. They were experts in the law, the Torah, and they, added, they aided the Pharisees in their interpretation of it. Well, one of the scribes, what does he say? He says, teacher, you realize that you're insulting us as well in your insults to the Pharisees. Maybe he was expecting Jesus to say, oh, geez, man, I'm sorry. Y'all are good. I'm just going after the Pharisees. Okay, my apologies for the misunderstanding. But what does Jesus say? The scribes say, you insult us too, you know. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. And actually, woe to you, and woe to you, and woe to you. In other words, Jesus is saying, you need to repent too. And what are they guilty of? Well, like the Pharisees, they added to the law. They make it a burden to follow God. And to make matters worse, they didn't help the people lift the burden whatsoever. So there's the double burden, right? They add laws, and then they don't help people carry the burden they created. They've done something that should never be done. They've made following God a duty rather than a delight. They made following God a chore rather than something to be joyfully pursued. See, this is what we might misunderstand about the law. Jesus doesn't have a problem with it. Did you know that? The problem was never the law. The problem was human hearts. The law was never meant to be salvific. It was never meant to save. The Old Testament message isn't do this and you'll earn salvation. That's what people like Pharisees and scribes and Judaizers turned it into, but that wasn't the spirit of its in, that it was intended to do. The message was always from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. The message was always God saves the people by his grace and gives them the law for their good and flourishing. You know, one of the most telling passages on this, write this down and just look it up later. Just go read Deuteronomy 6 and 7 later. God says, he tells the people of Israel, you should teach all these statutes you've been given, these statutes you've been given, all these rules you should teach to your kids. And God anticipates, you know, because he knows kids. What do kids do when you tell them to do something? Why should I do this, Right? Not my angels because they're perfect, but everybody else's kids, right? So they ask, why should we obey these commands? And the answer is, you know what God tells them of why? 
He didn't say because God said. You know what he tells them? We were slaves in Egypt, and God brought us out by his grace. You see, why should you obey? Because God saved you. And then in the very next chapter, you know, God says, he says, do you know why I love you? Do you know why I chose you and saved you over anybody else? Because I love you. You weren't more numerous than other people. You weren't better than other people. I love you because I love you. And so why obey? Because God saved you. Why does he love you? Because he, because he loves you. Now, do you see Jesus' outrage? They turned that into a burden. People take on these obligations alone, and they felt crushed under the weight of them, forgetting what, that God is not some hard taskmaster with a whip in hand saying, do this if you want to live. The people forgot because of the Pharisees and scribes that God is the one who said, you know why I love you, because I love you, pursue these commands, because I saved you. That's a world of difference. Bach once more says, Jesus is not condemning the goal of the scribes as much as their methodology. People need instructions and guidance, but it should not crush them. But further, the scribes are on the verge of making the biggest mistake of all missing out on the time of repentance and turning that God is offering them. Something their fathers missed out on too. What Jesus is saying is, God sent prophets to your ancestors before, and they preached the message like the message I'm giving, and your fathers did what? What's he say? They killed them. Now you build graves for these prophets? And you honor them? It's your fathers that killed them! And you're just like them. That's what he's telling them. He says, every prophet from the first martyr, Abel, in the first book of their Bible, to, the, to Zechariah in the last book of their Bibles, Second Chronicles is the last book of the Hebrew Bible, every one of them was killed because of their message, and now you want to honor them. And when you're doing the same thing, scribes were saying, if we'd been around when those prophets were here, we wouldn't have killed them. And Jesus is saying, yes, you would have because you're doing it now. You know what this is like? This is what I thought of. I know he wasn't a prophet in the biblical sense, but it's like how now the same government that investigated, arrested, and spied on Martin Luther King Jr. declared a national holiday in his honor after he had been killed. Now you want to honor him? What happened when he was alive? Did you honor him? Now that it doesn't cost you anything, you honor him? Or maybe you and I look back at the civil rights era and I think, I would have been on Dr. King's side, marching alongside with him. Would we? This is what scribes were doing. Honoring prophets that Jesus said they would have been right there trying to kill with their fathers because they feared man more than they feared God. Because they refused to repent. Because they would rather hold of, keep hold of their place of honor than approach God with contrition and cries of forgiveness. Jesus is saying, it's worse for you. It's worse for you because you're rejecting my message and I'm the one the prophets were pointing to. And in rejecting me, you're agreeing with your ancestors' work. Now, the lunch, you can imagine, did not end well. Jesus finishes calling the religious leaders on their sins and he leaves and they, however, try to press hard and provoke him to speak about many things, says Luke. 
What this means is they were trying to gain an advantage on him in hopes of discrediting or embarrassing Jesus. What Jesus said was true, and it was embarrassing for these men who prize so highly their public honor and reputation. This is true of all who self-justify. If what's said of you is true but stinging, if you could discredit the one who's saying those hard but true words, then maybe people won't believe what's been said about you. What happened was they responded poorly. They rejected the criticism. They identified Jesus as the enemy. They said one way or the other, we're going to stop him. See, Jesus confronted them because he wanted them to see the errors of their ways. He spoke to them harshly because what they did was serious. And their posture was arrogant. They were leading people to hell. They were burning poor sinners whom God loved. They were like cups full of poison, offering people a drink. But at least the outside of the cup was shiny, right? This was serious. But what these religious leaders do is show us the exact wrong reaction we should have to being confronted by the hard truths that Jesus confronts you and I with in his word. I was listening to Alistair Begg. You guys know Alistair Begg? I was listening to him preach on this very text. And this is what he said to his church. He said, what about being like an unmarked grave? Or even a marked one? All shiny and two feet down, a total disaster. That's me. He said, if you knew what I was really like, you'd never listen to me preach. And if I knew what you were really like, I'd never come and preach to you. I was driving in my car alone when I heard that, and I let out an audible oof, because I felt that. Do you feel that? Woe to you who has the external religion all down. Woe to me who enjoys being heard. Woe to those who are good at playing Christian but neglect internal heart transformation. Woe to us if we would loathe our sin being discovered more than we hate the sin itself. Woe to us if it is important to us to look like a follower of Jesus more than it is to actually be one. Woe to us if we're trusting in our morality or our reputation or our deeds to save us rather than trusting in justification that comes from Christ alone. You know that there are people in hell who are on church committees. There are people in hell who sang in church choirs. There are people in hell who were ushers at their church. There are people in hell who, have a lot, who gave a lot of money to their church and other charitable causes. There are people in hell who had a perfect Sunday school record. There are people in hell who were deacons and pastors. There are people in hell who had great orthodox theology. Why are they in hell? Not because any of those things are bad things. They're in hell because they trusted in those things and not Jesus. They put the weight of justification on themselves and not Jesus. My friend, where is your trust for justification today? This is an uncomfortable text from Jesus because it confronts us all. But Jesus means to make us uncomfortable because only when you wrestle with your heart of sin and religious hypocrisy can he come and heal you. 
Only when you acknowledge your sickness will you go to a physician and his surgery hurts, but is for your good and spiritual health. Heart transplants usually hurt, don't they? That's what we need. You see what Jesus is doing in this text, don't you? Why would Luke include this? Because we need to be warned. We need to not be like the Pharisees, but not in that self-righteous kind of way, because then, ironically, we would be just like them. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, Jesus did not come to add to our comforts. He didn't come to help those who were already helping themselves or to fill life with more pleasant experiences. He came on a deliverance mission to save sinners. There is therefore an element in the gospel narrative that stresses that the coming of Jesus is a disturbing event of the deepest proportions. It had to be thus, for he did not come merely to add something extra to life, but to deal with our spiritual insolvency and the debt of our sin. He was not conceived in the womb of Mary for those who have done their best, but for those who know that their best is like filthy rags, far from good enough, and that in their flesh there dwells no good thing. He was not sent to be the source of good experiences, but to suffer the pangs of hell in order to be our Savior." We need to be transformed on the inside out. And Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who could do that. If you look at life in a fallen world and you feel burdened to be something before people in order to impress them, to not look like a Christian fraud, and it's weighing you down, Jesus says, don't worry about that. Bring your burden here and I'll take it. When you feel dirty from sin that only you know about and you'd run and hide if people knew so you could take a defensive posture of self-justifying, Jesus says, come here and let me clean you up. Luke is pointing us to his death, don't you see? He's already told us that Jesus has set his face on Jerusalem and now he has this run in with the religious elite who are now determined to get him. Jesus knows that. This is partly why he said what he did. He must die, but no one takes his life from him. He offers it up. And why? Because you can't save yourself. Because your deeds, no matter how numerous, no matter how impressive, will not save you even if you had a thousand lifetimes. Because no matter how well-respected you are by your peers, no matter how put together and Christian you look, you still need a new heart. Because even your besties need to repent of if they're not done for Christ's sakes by Christ's power. Because your salvation can only come through an atoning death and only the God-man Jesus Christ could be the lamb offering required. He did that. Not just so that you could get to heaven when you die. He did it so that you could be cleansed from the inside out here and now. So you could truly be transformed. So you could live for a better kingdom. So you could truly serve and love and give from the heart set free. So you could obey with joy, knowing that your obedience doesn't get you salvation, but it does grow you more like Jesus, the perfect one. Do you remember one of my favorite stories? I've told it to you before. And with this, we'll close. We're not sure if it's true or not. I hope it is. It tells of a time Abraham Lincoln went to a slave auction one day, and he was appalled by what he saw. And he was drawn to a young woman on the auction block. And while the bidding began, and Lincoln decided he would bid until he purchased her. 
Well, the bidding kept getting higher and higher, but he was determined, he, I'm a purchaser, no matter the price. Well, he, he won the bid. He paid the auctioneer. He walked over to the woman, and he said, you're free. Free? She said, what is that supposed to mean? It means you're free, Lincoln answered, completely free. She said, does it mean I could do whatever I want to do? He said, yes. She said, free to, to, to say whatever I want to say? He said, yes, free to say whatever you want to say. Does freedom mean, asking with hope and hesitation, that I could go wherever I want to go? It means exactly that you could go wherever you want to go. And with tears of joy and gratitude one up in her eyes, she said, then I think I'll go with you. That Jesus has purchased us at the greatest cost there is. We couldn't purchase ourselves. And our choice then is to see that and let it sink in our bones that we cannot loose our own bonds and see what Christ did to submit to him and to say, then I will go with you. And that's the posture that changes us from the inside out and saves us from all matter of legalism and Pharisaism and makes us able to give love, pursue justice, serve others, and worship God truly from a heart set free, justified by the only justifier, now and forever.